welcome to the Chicago Justice Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Siska. I'm also Executive Director of the Chicago Justice Project. You want to find out more about our work, chicagojustice.org. Want to get involved, cjpnation.org. And if you want to donate, the Patreon link will be down below. Support all the transparency and accountability work in the podcast itself. We'd really appreciate it. If you're watching on YouTube, please smash the subscribe, like this video, and ring the bell, and you'll get alerts every time we post. Today on the podcast, we talk to Raina Lipsitz, who is the author of The Rise of the New Left, How Young Radicals Are Shaping the Future of American Politics, published by Verso. Her works appeared in Al Jazeera, The Appeal, The Atlantic, The Nation, The New Republic, and many other publications, including The Crime Report, because she wrote a piece titled Breaking the Toxic Cycle of Fear Over Justice Reform. She was supposed to be on the pod last towards the end of last summer, but with my family health issues um, and all of that playing out, that got delayed. We're so honored that she took time to sit down with us and talk to her about an article. Let's focus more on the national level, but it does apply to Chicago. We may have the earliest flip-flop in the history of Chicago politics. Brandon Johnson's spokesperson, or whoever that is, media person, has come out and said, you know, about um, reopening all those mental health clinics that we said, well, you know, maybe we have to look around and, you know, figure out the environment before any decisions are made. Could quite possibly be the quickest flip-flop in Chicago political history, flip-flopping before they actually get sworn in. It looks like, at least with that comment, that we're going to be in the situation where we have another mayor of Chicago running to the left to get elected and then governing in the right center. Right? Center right, right, you know, area of Chicago. So there we go. This may be, um, you know, just another one. I mean, Daly said all these good things during the campaigns and then never delivered. So did Rahm, so did his dad, um, Jane Byrne. Harold wasn't around long enough to deliver, in my opinion, probably, but this is just how it's been. Lightfoot did it. She delivered on a few things, and she had the pandemic, understand, but God, on police reform, she was kind of a joke. She just kept throwing more and more money at them, including the secret $100 million raise that she gave them that is off the books that no one talks about, but we talked about it on our podcast earlier this season. So please enjoy the interview, and I will be back with you after it's over. Thanks. Raina Lipsitz, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having me. So as I mentioned off air, we're talking about uh, a piece that you wrote for the Crime Report, Breaking the Toxic Cycle of Fear Over Justice Reform. It was back in July 29th of 2022. Um, been meaning to have you on. We didn't get you on because I had some family health issues. Um, but it's a really, really interesting piece that a link will be in the show notes. I, I suggest everyone please read it and also go pick up her book, The Rise of the New Left, How Young Radicals Are Shaping the Future of American Politics, came out last September. All right, so Raina, what, what, told, what, what drove you to um, write this piece? Uh, I think what drove me to write the piece, I'd been thinking a lot about the New York mayoral race in 2021. I, I've lived in New York since 2005, so I consider myself a New Yorker. And 
that race was really interesting. I was pretty uh, surprised and not entirely pleased when Eric Adams won it. Um, he did not win with a majority, you know, and it was a very crowded field, but he did win. Uh, and I, I think that told us a lot about what was happening in both in New York and nationally in terms of this kind of panic over crime recurring. And the, the point of the piece is that it's sort of a cycle that we have in this country and especially in large cities. Yeah, it's a big piece, um, a big problem in Chicago. I've been, I did activists in police reform and justice reform work since around 1996 or so. And, and it is the cycle, which we'll get to later that you talk about, it definitely happens in Chicago. And actually in Chicago, it happens on a yearly basis. Um, it's almost on a seasonal cycle in Chicago. So let's bring up Eric Adams. You talk about aggressive tactics that he's like kind of like reverted to, or I think in the piece you say doubled down to. Can you give us an idea of what some of those tactics are? Sure. I mean, he one of the first things he did was bring back uh, solitary confinement to Rikers, and that would had been a a I think years long struggle by activists and by people who'd lost loved ones in um, in prisons and jails in New York after a period where they'd been effectively tortured and, and isolated and then in, in some cases driven to suicide. So there was a movement to end that practice, to ban solitary confinement. One of the first things Eric Adams did was bring it back. Um, you know, more recently than that, he's he's been extremely aggressive with unhoused people in New York doing clearing homeless encampments, just really kind of brutally uh, getting rid of people who've been living on the streets and, and destroying their their homes and their communities. And then he tried in November, he started talking about involuntary commitment of of people struggling with mental illness, which is sort of a shocking thing to find ourselves back in that in that sort of period that I had thought was a historical period <laughs> that we'd moved beyond where you, you know, involuntarily commit people for not on suspicion of, of maybe being violent at some point, but not as a result of an actual violent act. Uh, so those are, I mean, some of the more shocking things he's done. I think in general, he's just very clearly been an ally to the police and to prison guards and not so much to the people um, who are subject to the to the violence from police and prison guards. You know, it's interesting you bring up Rikers. I, I have just the smallest sliver of personal experience with it. So, God, back 18 years ago, 2005, I was an intern at the Vera Institute in New York, and their interns went on the summer intern tour of Rikers that the Department of uh, Jail... Uh, corrections in new york put on so a couple of us tagged along and in that towards the end we got to see what their solitary confinement and they put us on the floor and um we were getting a tour from one of their commissioners and someone asked what do you have to do to get in and besides like some certain levels of violence he basically said a bunch of things that sounded like contempt of guard like <laughs> Not making, right. you know, not exactly following all the orders or something, just pissing off the guard. And later, after the tour was over, we had lunch with the head of Rikers. And one of the, the same intern from the Department of 
uh, what, Bureau of Prisons or whatever. Island things. He is like, um, no, no, no. He said all these things. That sounds like just making a guard mad. And the guy didn't know what to say. He just kind of sat there and we moved on to other topics. Um, so to see, to see us going back to that, that's, that's pretty scary. Yeah, it's, it's pretty distressing, I think, especially to the people who uh, who've had family members who were, who really suffered from, from being, I mean, you know, various groups, I think Amnesty International and others have, have described this as a form of torture and it, and it is, I mean, it has long-term psychological impacts and we know that from, from decades of research. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's treating the symptoms without like actually finding solutions. All right, so in your piece, you talk about, and I want to quote from it, the cycles of reaction, reform, and backlash the proponents of large-scale structural change are dealing with. What are these cycles of reaction, reform, and backlash that you're talking about? I mean, I think the first one I was conscious of was in the 90s when I, I was a teenager and Bill Clinton was, was running on putting 100,000 more cops on the streets to to deal with violent mm -hmm. crime. So there's periodically, and I'm not, I don't want to dismiss the idea that there are real crime surges. Sometimes, sometimes that is a reality. Sometimes crime is going up in certain categories. Sometimes it's not, but it feels like it is. And there's sort of a right-wing media um, that feeds the narrative that it is. But whether it's perception or reality, sometimes there's a, a perception that crime is rising. Sometimes it's actually rising. And the next thing you see are politicians running on, and this is true, I, you know, of Democrats and Republicans. And I think the big lesson from the Clinton years was that you could sort of um, outmaneuver the Republicans by claiming this as your issue, right? That was the big sort of um, innovation of, of Bill Clinton's politically to, to be like, I am in the law and order uh, column and you can't outflank me on that. And, you know, that's what Eric Adams did essentially in 2021. He said, I'm a police officer. Um, and, and in fact, he ran a police reform group for a number of years and was part of various reform efforts. So he had that kind of uh, moral authority that he came with. And they say, we're going to clean up crime. You know, people are scared. We're going to clean up crime. And then what happens is they introduce these really draconian measures that we know don't work from decades of, of seeing this play out. And then a few years later, sometimes they have to apologize a few years later. You know, Joe Biden was called on by various people and groups in, in 2019 to apologize for his role in the 1994 crime bill. I don't think he really did. And it turned out not to be a liability for him because he won, you know, he beat Trump by 7 million votes. So I think sometimes it's a political winner to to do that and then there's a period where people say oh my gosh actually that was bad it didn't work it it made people miserable it, it increased the prison population and then we just sort of go back and do it all over again yeah that is definitely um i think that cycle exists and in chicago it exists um like i said it does happen seasonally every year 
you can talk about reform of the police and the justice system from like September to like <laughs> April. Once May hits and violence goes up in May, June, July, and August, forget about it. Right. Right. Just like forget about it. Um, okay. What are your views on the reality of efforts to quote unquote defund the police? You know, that, that's used against Democrats a lot, but like how successful has that actually been for the left? Well, I think that the I think the movement itself is important um, and and shows the depth of the pain and anger that exists uh, in a lot of communities and a lot of age categories. A lot of people have been working on this for a very long time and really, really do want those resources shifted away from the police, which are overfunded in, in every major city, like seriously overfunded while we're defunding preschools, we're defunding libraries, we're defunding really vital social services. So that's what people want. I think that's totally reasonable and fair, and I understand where that comes from. As a practical matter, it hasn't succeeded in the sense that we haven't really actually defunded almost any police departments. And a lot of, play, a lot of cities where they vowed to do that, in fact, if you go back and see what actually happened, it didn't happen, right? And, you know, in Minneapolis, they voted on it, a referendum, and the defund side lost. And in other places, the city council said, we're going to do this, we're going to, you know, really move some money away. And then you look back a few months later, and they've added the money back to the budget, or they've done something tricky with the budget where it looks like they took it away from one category, but they put it back in another place. You see this in New York City, you know, where they did cut some money, but they put it back in other ways, and the police every year in New York City blow through their overtime budget, you know, egregiously and, and with no consequence, and they just keep getting that money. Other, other parts of the city budget just don't work that way, right? You're not going to get more money in public schools if you just blow past your budget. That's not mm -hmm. how it works. So I think it's, you know, and I, I particularly resent, I say this in the article, that the left and young people and Democrat, progressive Democrats have been blamed for, uh, you know, crime as if, as if there's A, we have actually defunded the police, which we haven't, and B, as if there's a proven link between defunding the police and crime going up, which there isn't. So I think those are the two things I would say about it, that it is an important movement. It's based on real, uh, real outrage, real feelings of frustration that are valid. And it hasn't really worked because we haven't gotten the buy-in needed to really make those changes uh, permanent. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I've also found that in the left media, for the most part, also suffers from this fear of crime issue. Mm -hmm. And has all too, all too often rushes to criticize the defund movement. Um, I know TYT, the Young Turks, and others criticize some of the progressive prosecutors, which we'll talk about in a minute, um, and some of the mayors that have engaged whatever little they have on defund because mm -hmm. crime went up in 2020 as if, in my view, anyone with a brain who in 2019 was asked the question, hey, there's going to be a worldwide pandemic that kills a million Americans and millions more across the globe. And the worst parts of all of it are going to be felt on 
the most underserved communities of color in this country. And those are most often in urban areas. What do you think is going to happen to urban crime and violence? Right. Right. Before, so I, I, even the left media, I times, and I have a lot of problems with the Young Turks on crime and justice, they all too often push the blame on to progressive reforms rather than like, hey, man, it's the pandemic. Um, okay, so let me ask you this. And overall Why do you... social conditions. Sorry, I don't mean to no, go interrupt. Yeah, go but ahead. yeah, exactly. It's the pandemic. I mean, a years long pandemic that's still killing a thousand Americans a week. Um, and, and just sort of the collapse of, of everything else, right? The, the defunding of these major social services, which were briefly better funded during the pandemic out of necessity, and now we're taking those supports away again. You know, we're taking the child tax credit away. We're taking money away that people have become accustomed to and that were helping, that was really helping families, right? And so now we're back in austerity budgeting, austerity policies, that's going to have downstream effects, obviously. Um, and I just think there's a real unwillingness, there's a, a serious lack of political will to engage with the root causes of crime. Uh, we just keep doing the same Band-Aid stuff year after year and then being surprised when it, it doesn't work and it goes up and down. You know, the, the whole goal socially should be to permanently lower the crime rate and to make and to allow people to live sort of happier, healthier lives in general. And that's not what we're doing. Right. Oh, 100 percent. I'm like, I think one of the few criminologists, I, I'm sure there are more that I just don't know of that talk about when people bring up crime and violence um, reduction strategies, I always say poverty. Get out of my field. Right. Get out of my lane right there. Let's just go to poverty. And like, oh, well, you know, you got to deal with all these other things, including racism, like you do. But the quickest thing to deal with is poverty. You can, government can just give people money. Right. The and we saw them things, do that. Yeah. Right, exactly. But the easiest thing to deal with is poverty. We can deal with all the things after that. That's great. And I agree with that. There's a million reforms that have to be done. Um, but that's just my take. And then I, this is why I, I, you know, I, that voice is not as often quoted as in the media as I think it should be. Um, why are Democrats, I've always said, starting with Clinton, was the, was the uh, move national Democrats, and it's trickled down the mayors, and Mayor Lightfoot to some degree was one of those, our mayor in Chicago recently. Mm -hmm. um, Democrats have moved so far right that to, for Republicans to distinguish themselves, they have to move further right. Yes. Which is an electorally... Um, if it's just about power and winning elections, it's just not uh, not a dumb move by the Democrats. Or not always. It doesn't always work for them. No, it yeah, doesn't always, yes. but yes. Sometimes it works, yeah. Right. I agree. Um, um, I think that it's worked for them in a lot of places. Is it, in your opinion, is this purely about, for like the national level, when you talk about national level Democrat, Democrats, is this purely just about electoral victories? that they keep committing down on these things that they're pushing right, but also just recommitting the policies like Eric Adams, like knowingly doing things that we have evidence, scientific evidence that fail. I, I mean, I think Eric Adams is, uh, it is a, naturally a conservative person. I, I, I think those are uh, his actual politics. I don't really think he's 
doing it cynically. I think he believes in, in that. I think you kind of have to, to, um, to keep getting promoted as a, as a police officer, right? You have to buy into to the system that you're a part of and the things that you're doing, the, the policies that you're promoting. I don't know. I think nationally the biggest problem with the Democratic Party that I see is that they really, uh, you know, and it's, part, it, it's for a lot of reasons, including the fact that the party itself is a big tent and includes people who have very, very dramatically different um, politics and beliefs and feelings about certain policies. But the National Party doesn't have a set of things that it def- definitively stands for, right? You could say oh, the Democrats stand for abortion rights, and that's kind of true, although, in my opinion, the National Party bears a lot of blame for uh, allowing Roe to be overturned. Um, But there's not a whole lot when you say, what does it mean to be a Democrat? I I think people don't, there's not widespread agreement on what that means. There aren't like three things you can point to that all Democrats support and believe in. And that's particularly true on criminal justice issues, right? We just are not a united party on on things like solitary confinement, involuntary commitment of homeless people. We're not united on housing policy. You know, there are these vast areas of, of sincere disagreement and also the money in the party, the money that keeps the party going is from major donors, many of whom are not not big fans of progressive reforms, right? Because they, they stand to lose. They don't want their taxes to go up. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a big... That's a big issue for the party. I think that's why I referred to it in my article as moribund. And it really, I mean, it's its kind of hollowed out. There's not a whole, you meet, and no young people. I've interviewed many, many young people in the last uh, six years, and none of them was like, oh, I'm so excited to be a Democrat. You know, they're not, they don't relate to this uh, entity because it doesn't feel like it stands for anything. And they'll say different things depending on, you know, where they think public sentiment is. So that's why you see uh, Joe Biden talking about reforms when it's a reform moment. And then a couple of years later saying, you know, I stand with the police and we need to crack down on crime or whatever. It's, there's a, a lack of consistency. Oh, 100%. I think they know they certainly go towards the way the wind blows. Right. Yes. Um, and... I think I think the something the national party is going to have to deal with, and I know in Chicago, um, they're going to have to deal with the fact that the young people are not going to turn out for a centrist right. unless the unless the candidates are far far right extremists. Right. It isn't about for the Democrats. It isn't about losing the youth vote to Republicans. It's about losing the youth vote into them not voting. To apathy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that's right. right. And that's just a bigger problem because the only way they're going to win is with the youth vote. Mm-hmm. Right. All right. So let's get to what do you think? I know you talked a little bit about it in the article. What do you think Larry Krasner, the progressive pr- prosecutor in Philadelphia, his reelection means for Democrats? What should they learn from it? I mean, I think it's great news for not just for Democrats, but for the, the reform movement. I mean, I, I think Larry Krasner, you know, I know a lot more about New York politics than I do about Philly politics. Mm-hmm. But from what I've read and seen of him, he's just he part of what 
drives his success is that he is a naturally talented politician. He's just very good at talking to people and being relatable and explaining what he wants to do and why he's doing it. I think those are tremendous strengths, uh, particularly in, in a field like politics. And he really ran as part of a movement. He shored up that support and, and he, um, he works with other people and he gives other people credit. I think that's something that's really striking about him that when he talks, it's never about what I, Larry Krasner, am doing. It's about what he's doing with other people, with all of these people who have helped get him where he is. Now, a huge challenge for him and for Brandon Johnson in Chicago, for anybody running in sort of a progressive lane, is that, you know, no matter how mild your criticism is or your critique is of, of the police or of certain practices of the police, the police will be, they will fight back 10 times harder than, than you came at them, right? And, and we've seen, I mean, we saw that in New York with um, under Bill de Blasio. He had a tremendously hostile police department. And that's a real challenge for the left because that can undermine, uh, particularly if you're in an executive office, it really undermines your ability to govern effectively if you have a whole group of people who are threatening to or just not going to do their job if they're angry at you. Um, I mean, what's interesting in New York is that sometimes that has the opposite of the intended effect, right? So I believe it was 2015, the cops were pissed off at Bill de Blasio. They sort of did an unofficial work stoppage, work slowdown, crime went down. Um, and people were sort of like, what did that prove except everything that we've been saying already, which <laughs> is that if you stop enforcing low-level crime, you know, going after people for traffic violations, things are going to actually improve. And we did see that briefly then. I don't think it's always that neat. I don't think it's always going to work out uh, in our favor in that way. But it's a, it, that's a real problem to, to figure out is that tension between the police and the people who nominally control the police or employ the police. Yeah, I remember that. I think that's happened a couple of times in New York where they've tried these blue flu type of things. Right. And um, the city has went on running perfectly. Um, right. And then or the better. Police, or better. And then the police union is like, no, 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 go back to work. Go go start making arrests again. They may right. figure out that that's a lot of the low stuff that we do all day doesn't really make a difference. Right, exactly. So if, just turning to Chicago a little bit, in Chicago, we have, uh, on our last day, or last couple of days here, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, first female black, first uh, queer person, uh, so female black lesbian, ran as somewhat of a progressive. Um, she was probably had someone on the ticket more progressive than her when she was running another black female who got caught up in kind of like a corruption, clout scandal, so Lori wins. And... One of the first things she does, she ran as the progressive police reformer, is bring in uh, a super, uh, interim superintendent. No, 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 she doesn't. She keeps the superintendent about 10 months, has to fire him. Okay, bring in those three months between old school guy in, from, in, within the department that was running the CPD, Chicago Police Department, till she hires a dinosaur in March little after the pandemic starts of 20 she brings in charlie back from los angeles a former chief of police there and i'm sure charlie is not without his um his issues but he came in to 
massively reform the police department. And he came in under the agreement that I will come in, I will, I have the credentials to, to get the, co- the rank and file on my side, and I will start cranking in these reforms. And then you're going to hire someone to replace me that will follow them through. That was the agreement as far as we know. And he started doing those reforms, getting rid of specialized units completely. And those are, they've been a big problem in Chicago, lack of supervision. Um, and when Charlie leaves, Mayor Lightfoot hires a dinosaur, a old school special unit, uh, very manipulative around statistics, lie, lie, will lie right to your face kind of cop and I'm wondering should we have expected that is this just what Democrats do I mean yes I think that's uh, for a lot of them especially the ones in again in executive positions I think that they are under tremendous pressure and that is often the the pivot that they make it's 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 pretty rare I think for a Democrat to get into an executive office and then move left, right? They're, they always end up tacking right when they get in. Um, and I think that's for a lot of reasons, but they are legitimately there under a lot of pressure from a lot of different constituencies. To me, though, that's not an excuse for that behavior. It's like you either are a person who, you know, defends the lives and humanity of everyone in your city or you're not. And I think in New York, what everybody's um, talking about now is what happened to Jordan Neely on the subway Mm -hmm. who's choked to death by a fellow subway rider, an ex-Marine. You know, that's not that's not the same as a killing by a cop because this guy was not an agent of the state. But it is related to that because, you know, we the the more you treat people as if their lives mean nothing the more that's going to happen. They're going to be treated by other people in the society as if their lives mean nothing. And I think that's what happened to Jordan Neely. And I, you know, I just, it's very hard to know what to do because these people, once they get into office, are in a way no longer accountable to the people who put them there. They have at least a few years to make whatever decisions they want to make. Sometimes there are consequences to that. Sometimes they don't. I mean, Lori Lightfoot lost, right? But mm-hmm. uh, sometimes there aren't any consequences to that. And in the meantime, the decisions they make are affecting um, at least thousands of people, sometimes millions of people. Yeah, and you can always count on a Democrat to disappoint you. That's my view of, of these things. And Mayor Lightfoot did something in Chicago that I I kind of wrote her off pretty quick. I knew Lori. I mean, I know Lori. I haven't talked to her since she got in office. Um, but this is really where I kind of like wrote her off completely. Um, and the hiring of David Brown was pretty much it. But this was the next thing, the big thing. And I want to get your comment on it. When the protest, George Floyd protests hit Chicago, David Brown, the dinosaur she hired from Dallas, the superintendent, misread the intelligence that the county sheriffs and the state police had, they were all ready to come to Chicago and gear it up. And the Chicago Police Department just ignored that. Didn't think protests were coming to Chicago. So they were caught off guard. 
it came pretty. It became evident pretty quick that these protesters had demands and they wanted reforms. And what Mayor Lightfoot said right away to defund was, she came out right away and said, "Absolutely not. We will not even entertain that discussion." And Chicago had protests continuing through the summer mm-hmm. and violence. And I always thought, I was like, well, that's the end of me and Lori. Um, that was it. But I also thought it strategically was incredibly dumb to not be like, you know what? Let's ha- engage the city in this a year-long discussion. Even though it's the pandemic, let's do it virtually. Let's see what this would look like. Right. And we'll come out in a year with a report. We need to like get these people off the streets and engaged in the system. She didn't do that. And I just want to get your thoughts to her like knee-jerk reaction to just dismiss engaging the protesters at any level. I, I mean, in a way, it's almost better than, than pretend fake engaging with protesters, which I feel like is often what happens in New York, where there's a series of mm-hmm. hearings or a series of uh, pronouncements from City Hall at, and, you know, that sort of talks in the language of Black Lives Matter and... and gives you some feeling that something is happening or that you're being listened to. But I think I say in the article, when you really look at what's happening in these cities with the budget, it's there's no shift in the actual overall numbers on police funding. There's a shift in rhetoric sometimes. Mm-hmm. So I guess it sort of depends on what you want from somebody. Sometimes it's better, I think, to know from the outset who your enemy is. And at least she told you up front, I don't care what you think, I don't care what the protesters think, I don't care what the people of the city want, this is what I'm doing. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that's better or worse than somebody who says, I hear you, I feel your pain, I'm listening, I I really care about this, and then just continues to do the same, make the same funding choices and, and give the same breaks to the police department. Yeah, and I think I agree with that. And my listeners may know this um, and my viewers, but in Chicago, I think Lightfoot um, took it a step further in her first term. And she had talked about doing this. The police department needed a new police academy. The one they were using was dilapidated and not serving its purpose at any level and, and restricting the, what training they could actually do. So she put like two or three hundred million dollars, increased their budget to cover the construction of the of the um, police academy. But another thing is she created an office inside the mayor's office called public safety. And it was going to like take over some responsibilities of the internal workings of the management of the CPD and the fire department. And an article came out and it came out, but then it kind of dropped. And in the article, there was this wonky guy that did a report. It basically showed that yes, the mayor moved those, responsibilities from the CPD to her office, to this public safety office in her office, it took away $100 million of responsibilities from the CPD. But she didn't move that money. Right. So she secretly gave the Chicago Police Department a $100 million raise that no one's talking about. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, she's talking about not having money for all these other programs. Right, right. It's so typical Democrat, it's ridiculous. 
And I think even, I think one, one thing I've been thinking a lot about in New York is that the watch, watchdog agencies that we have, or bodies that we have, like in New York, we have a civilian complaint review board. Mm -hmm. um, and just in 2022 alone, the board rejected over half of the recommenda disciplinary recommendations. I'm sorry, the police commissioner rejected yep. over half of the board's disciplinary recommendations. So that means that you know, this board that ostensibly has oversight over the police or has some kind of uh, mechanism by which to say we're going to hold these officers responsible because we find the complaints warranted after an investigation and the police commissioner can just overrule them. And the police commissioner, well, who is the police commissioner? She was put there by Eric Adams. She's an ally of the mayor's. If the mayor mm -hmm. seriously cared about this, um, he would he would say you have to abide by the by the disciplinary recommendations issued by the CCRB. He's of course not going to say that. There is no real mechanism within the CCRB to compel the police to accept its recommendations. And this is part of the problem is that we have a lot of sort of uh, fake or surface level bodies that are supposed to be keeping an eye on this stuff, and they don't you know for for a lot of reasons. Partly because they were founded in a weakened form after a lot of opposition to making them really effective. But there's a lot of interesting stuff out there about the way these boards function. First of all, most cities don't have them at all, but the cities who do have them, they just simply don't work and they've been effectively co-opted or neutralized by the police and by the mayors of those cities. Yeah. In Chicago, my listeners probably know this, but aren't going to be too happy with it. Chicago has one of the most sophisticated, multi-layered, multi-layered, complicated police accountability systems in the country with real discipline powers, and it still doesn't work. So, so um, what's you know, the theory? Why is that? Why doesn't it work there? It's just too too complex. It's 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 incompetence, mostly yeah. incompetence, and. Um, I, we haven't really had the lack of will in their leaders, unfortunately. Um, it's complicated, but yeah, it just doesn't work. And I've, that's why once again, let's, we'll circle back to the beginning. If you take, if you can deal with poverty, you can, you can empower those communities to fight back and resist. And by the way, poverty would take, reduce violence and crime significantly. And then you'd have a lot less of all of this. Yeah, um, I agree. In my opinion. So, okay. Raina Lipsitz, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks for having me. Once again, everyone, you can pick up her book, The Rise of the New Left, How Young Radicals Are Shaping the Future of American Politics. At Verso came out last September. Please pick it up and go read the article. Um, breaking the toxic, toxic cycle of fear over justice reform. It's really interesting. It's at the Crime Report. All the links will be in the show notes. Thanks again. Really appreciate it, Raina. Thank you so much. Once again, I'd like to thank Raina for joining us. You know, for, when you look at Chicago specifically, progressives put Johnson in office. That's who put him in office, right? Blacks and wh white progressives. There could be black progressives too, but it was blacks, some of the Latino vote, and white white North Shore, right? North Shore progressives. Is he going to deliver on the reform, especially the police reforms he's talked about?
knows? Can deliver on police reform? Is he going to deliver on reallocation of some of the money? Don't know. You know, he's talked about, um, Johnson has talked about a lot about hiring all these new detectives. It probably can't have hurt that much to have a little more detectives, but I, you know, the research in the 80s done by Wes Gogan, and I forgot who else was author of that book called Policing, basically showed back then that, I think it was towards the late 80s, it was published, early 90s maybe. Basically, it said, for all the violent cases where there is not DNA, because at the beginning of the DNA era, where there isn't a fingerprint that leads right to the suspect, where the victim or witness don't identify exactly who did it. Well, the police solved around 5% of the remaining. What did they solve? 5%. Is that good? (laughs) No, I think Americans would be shocked to hear that figure. I think Americans would be shocked to know right now when those things happen. And this is part of the reason when you're getting drive-bys and Things like that, it's a lot harder to solve. And you know what? The reality is police don't solve them. And really, the only way they solve them is if they get a cooperating witness. They bust them on something else and they give them information. They're not really tracking the person down. His early, Johnson's early flip-flop gives me pause. You know, you look at uh, Kreisner, Krasner in Philly. To some extent, Kim Fox in Chicago, to a large extent, Kim Fox in Chicago. She didn't screw up that small case um she'd probably still be in an office or probably be running for another term uh, a year from november when you look at lightfoot yeah she campaigns to the left and in aspects maybe the most progressive mayor chicago's had but is that really saying a lot no right she was kind of a disaster remember mayor lightfoot back david brown's firing within the last year of Hubbard boyk who's been a a guest on the first season when we did the live shows. He was a guest and he ran the Office of Constitutional Policing. Um, and Lori backed that. He wanted 46 more cops to, to be assigned to the academy to keep up with the training requirements of the consent decree. What did David Brown do in, in response? He fired him. Lori backed it. They, neither one really delivered on their promises related to policing. Lightfoot did run some trial programs related to crisis response, but she has slow walked it as much as she thought she politically could, because I don't think she's really a backer of it. You know, and summer is coming. It's going to be tough for Johnson, right, with the violence. He's somehow supposed to come into office early May and have a solution of violence already that's already started to tick up with summer. Willie Fold? Most likely. We'll see. I hope not. But there's no indication in the history of Chicago to believe this shows us that we should have any faith in him not flip-flopping. Especially because the media and the alt-right are going to make such a big deal out of every crime incident and tie it to Johnson as if he's somehow the cause of crime from three or four weeks from now. So once again, ladies and gentlemen, pick up Raina's book, The Rise of the New Left, how, long radi- how, how Young Radicals Are Shaping the Future of American Politics at Verso. I'll try to put a link to the book um, in the show notes. I really 
Um, so anyways, thank you very much for being here. I really appreciate it. And we'll be talking next week.